Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, the host of Lawmakers on GPB, and I'm filling in today for Bill Nygut. Thank you for joining us. We're going to spend the show talking about something lots of families are discussing right now, the upcoming school year. What will it look like for parents, for students, for teachers and staff? And some school districts have released their reopening plans and may include a hybrid of students in school or at-home learning virtually. Under a cloud of the pandemic, school systems are asking parents to make some tough decisions on whether to send their children back to classrooms or continue online learning. And we have a great lineup of guests to talk about this important topic. Ty Tagami is the AJC State Education Reporter. And hi, Ty. I know you've been at the Capitol the last few days or weeks, I should say. The, the Capitol virtually. We were trying to keep our actual people uh, numbers low there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you, you had a lot to cover there, so we'll talk a little bit about some of those things. Thanks for being with us. Amy McCoy-Dees, she's chair of the Coweta County School Board and the District 6 director of the Georgia School Boards Association. Hi, Amy. Okay, we're going we're gonna to hope you're, we can hear you. We haven't heard you. Are you unmuted for us? There you are. Is that better? Yes. And the Georgia School Boards Association is uh, an important group right now. So I know you're helping the school districts kind of determine what to do and how to uh, get through all of this. So we'll talk about that. Thanks for being here. Margaret Ciccarelli, Director of Legislative Services for the Professional Association of Georgia Educators, PAGE. Hi, Margaret. Morning, y'all. How big is your organization? So we give people an idea of that. We represent about 97,000 educators across the state, um, many classroom teachers, but also bus drivers, paraprofessionals, um, others on the support team, school administrators and superintendents, also uh, students in Georgia's teacher preparation programs, so a wide swath um, of the educators in the state. And people who are very interested in our discussion today, so we hope they're, they're going to tune in. Uh, thanks for being here. Dr. Stephen Owens, a senior policy expert for K-12 education with the Georgia Budget, Public Policy, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. I want to say public policy. Uh, sorry about that, Stephen. No problem <laughs> at all. Thanks for having me. You're busy. You were busy during that rebooted uh, legislative session, too. I saw a lot of your work. Good stuff. Yeah, the, the, everything was moving at the speed of light. We we tried our best to keep tabs. Those last few days down there were pretty hairy. So thanks for being with us. So let's kick off this discussion. I want to play a part of an interview I did with the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Sally Goza. She practices in Fayetteville. And the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly advocates for students to be physically present in school this fall, emphasizing if it is safe. Also weighing in on the issue during an interview this past week, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's become known as America's doctor, we all know, as head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And so let's hear now from both doctors, Goza and Fauci, beginning with Goza. And I asked her why a physical presence in a classroom is essential from a pediat pediatrician's point of view. We really 
feel like it is very important that the goal would be for any kind of plan to get back to school would be for children to be in person in school. And this is because we really know that children would learn more in school than just reading, writing, and arithmetic. They learn social and emotional skills. Children get healthy meals there. They get exercise. They have mental health support. And, and children really need that social interaction. And so that's, that's why we came out with the guidelines, that that's what we feel like is in the best interest of children, that we have a goal, if it's safe, of children being back in in-person school. If you're in an area where you really want to get the children back to school, even though there is viral activity, because the unintended consequences of keeping children out of school sometimes can be very, very difficult to deal with. So the fundamental principle is you want to do whatever you can to safely get the kids back to school. If you need to make modifications, there are some creative ways that school principals, school superintendents are doing. Modifying the schedules, separation of desks, wearing masks under certain circumstances, protecting the vulnerables by allowing them to do online classes. There's a variety of ways to do that. But the bottom line is it depends on the activity of virus in the location that you're talking about. Okay. Once again, Fauci and Gosa, they stress that schools making that decision to open depends on the number of infections in the area and how school districts prepare for those students to return safely. So, Margaret Ciccarelli with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators, I'd like to take your comments first. Uh, How are teachers and staff reacting? And I know you just had a survey asking your members about reopening schools. We did. We closed the survey yesterday morning at 8.30, and we had about 16,000 educators across the state uh, participate in the survey, uh, which we did in conjunction with the Georgia School Nurses Association. Educators uh, responding to the survey uh, indicated a a high level of trepidation about returning to school. Most expect to to return to school, ultimately, uh, physically, about 80% of them. Um, But those who work in a district that has announced local opening plans um, are concerned that those don't fully protect um, those uh, students and teachers as they come back to the building. So I think everybody's goal, as Drs. Fauci and Gosa articulated, um, is to get students back into school, but we just want to do it safely, um, and we need um, to prepare for that because Georgia is one of the first states in the country to reopen schools, and not just this year, but um, traditionally we start before many schools in the nation begin. Yeah, so a lot of eyes will be on Georgia and, and how we start this whole process. I want to mention something that we uh, put out on Twitter that we were going to talk about this, and we had Chalice Montgomery say, ask, she actually commented, one could argue the schools are asking their staff to make a decision between their health and their jobs, and the conversation around school reopening conspicuously omits the issue of needing to replace experienced staff with qualified st- subs when those teachers succumb. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to that first, Margaret, before we move on. I think it's really complicated. And also that quote um, assumes that we can even find qualified substitute teachers who want to come into schools. Often uh, substitute teachers are retired um, teachers and it's teachers, those veteran teachers, both retired and those still working full time, um, who indicate higher levels of um, worry about coming back because more of them have indicated in our surveys that they're high risk. 
Um, so we shouldn't assume that we could we have a workforce of folks who could come in to successfully staff schools. Um, the staff are a critical piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and that's that's a big thing to consider for school districts. So, Amy, I want to bring you into this conversation, um, chair of the school board in Coweta County. What's your reaction to whether or not you're going to be able to get the staff to reopen? Um, we, we certainly have talked about that um, with 40, you know, you could bring the 49% in. Uh, the, the, the problem with that is, again, is you have the issue like Ms. Uh, Margaret was just talking about, you have there the at-risk category. So your qualified teachers and your certified folks that you would bring in that would be qualified to run that classroom are your at-risk. So then you would have to, you know, ask if, if they're willing to come in and to, you know, teach in that environment. I, you know, having subs is always kind of a difficult situation for us anyway. And getting qualified subs in, we are, we are facing that uh, obstacle as well. Yeah, so you're, you're going to worry about whether you can get your regular staff first and then um, in Correct. terms of the being safe and healthy and then to, then to worry about subs. Uh, Ty, I want to get you in on this now. There, in the middle of all of this, we just learned uh, about what's going on with the YMCA camps in Georgia, testing positive for COVID-19. Um, what do we know about some of the people who've, but, and they, I guess it's adults and children who've tested positive? So, yeah, they had two camps up at the lakes, uh, Burton and Alatoona. And um, uh, at this point, I think the last we've reported, they had uh, counted 30 people were infected. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, a challenge. YMCA has been in this from the start. They never, a lot of um, camps and, and uh, um, child care centers closed when the schools did back in March. The YMCA was... Uh, one of the few that really uh, stayed open for um, for emergency personnel, uh, and eventually, uh, well, everybody was waiting to hear what was going to happen with camps. A lot of camps never opened, um, but they ultimately did. Uh, they had the um, national infrastructure to plan for safety, so they felt like they were going into this with the, the best odds of avoiding um, infections, but it happened at those two camps. Yeah, so the feeling is we've seen what camps are doing. That kind of uh, is almost giving us an idea of what we might expect in schools, and I think there's some worry over that. Amy, let's let's get back to you really quickly on what your school board— let's talk a little bit about schools opening. So you guys are going to open when and what are the options that you have right now? We are going to return to classroom August the 6th. We have not made masks mandatory uh, we have done surveys. We've had uh, a, a great response from those parent surveys. Uh, we are offering a full online option provided by our Coweta County educators. So for those parents who are not uh, comfortable sending them back, we will offer that online uh, teaching environment by our own staff. So we are going to offer that, uh, of course, free of charge uh, to our folks because, you know, a lot of online uh, options you have to pay for. We are going to opt in, uh, do that. We are not requiring masks at this time, but of course that is going to be, it's a day-to-day -day guessing game, or I think we consult with our health department. We continue to ask that question, you know, what is safe? Uh, we will um, socially distance where possible, where that is feasible. We are not doing temperature checks. We have opted not to do that, and our school nurse is going to be our point of contact at each building level. We are asking for anyone, staff or our students especially, uh, to stay home if you're sick. And I think an important element to that is, is we are not going to take an attendance 
this year. We have decided not, you know, we normally schools will reward perfect attendance or you, you give awards for that. Uh, we have taken a stance that we're not going to reward that as we encourage you to stay home if you are sick. Uh, so those are a few things that we're doing in Coweta. Yeah, that's that's interesting uh, with the attendance, which has been such a big part of what schools have been uh, asked to do in in the past, especially under no you know no child left behind years ago and, and things like that. Um, let's let's talk about some of the other schools and time. I'm looking to you for that. Some of the districts. Um, you did a story when the G, the Georgia Department of Education issued guidance for reopening schools. Um, we know that the state's largest district, Gwinnett County Public Schools, releases its plan this evening. A lot of people are looking to them since they are the largest and one of one of the largest in the nation with 180,000 students. Um, there are a lot of families looking at that. But some of the other larger districts have released their um, plans. Some are hybrid, similar to what Cuyahoga County has done. Uh, Ty, kind of give us a rundown on those. Yeah, so um, in Metro Atlanta, among the big districts, the only hybrid I know of so far is Clayton County. They, they're planning to do And a hybrid means, for, for your listeners, is you know uh, your child goes to school maybe Tuesday Thursday, and then, you know, the, another child goes to school on Monday, Wednesday. So that way they get to see their teacher a little, and then they're going to be online the other days. Um, there are just all sorts of logistical challenges around that. Um, just planning schedules is one thing, but I think busing is the Achilles heel for a lot of districts. You'd have to be running, you know, with social distancing, you'd have to be running buses around the clock. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, if they have enough diesel fuel to make that happen. Uh, and especially in larger districts, relatively newer districts with big school buildings like, you know, Cobb County and Fulton County and Gwinnett County. Um, they don't, I don't think they're not really known for neighborhood schools that you can walk to. So I think those, like we know that Cobb and Fulton are doing either, you have to choose as a parent to do either in-person regular schooling or uh, online schooling and you have to commit to it for the first semester. So. Um, I don't know what Gwinnett's going to do, but um, it, it's, it's structured similarly to those other big school districts that have already made a decision. Um, so uh, it, 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 the hybrid is going to be interesting to see if districts do this around the state. Um, outside Metro Atlanta, uh, they really, a lot of school districts don't have some of the big advantages that we have here in Metro Atlanta, namely um, technology, broadband access. So many school districts just don't have it. And that means that just rules out the online option. In many cases, they have no option other than just doing in person. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit more during the show. Uh, in terms of hybrid, I, I had referred to it as a mixture of in classroom and on in terms of uh, the online. But if, if you're saying I, I didn't realize the Clayton model was more the the hybrid. So we'll we'll, we'll go with that, Ty. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that a little bit more. Um, so we know also that school districts, some of them have pushed back their dates a little bit, too. So because of the fact that they need the time to get some of them are asking parents, should do you want your kids in school or do you want them online? And then they've got to adjust their uh, staffs to those kinds of things, right, Margaret? They've got to figure out what, um, how they're going to be able to, who, how many teachers they're going to need, how many staff members, how they're going to make this all work. Exactly. They've got to pair um, the families that indicate interest in online learning 
potentially with teachers who are high risk and are uncomfortable coming back to an on-site setting. So that's a challenge um, to do that. But not only are these districts, um, some of them pushing back their opening dates for because of those challenges, but because we have some spikes of virus transmission across the state. My home district in Bullock County, um, Statesboro, Georgia, in the southeast uh, part of the state, has uh, delayed opening and gone to um, a virtual, and it will start virtually because of a spike in, in that community. So um, we may see that um, based on local transmission rates in different parts of the state. Yeah. Stephen, I want to pull you into the conversation. I, I hadn't forgotten you. I just want you to know. I, I know the Budget and Policy Institute is looking at whether schools can even afford to open before we dig into the statewide issues, and we'll get into that. I want to ask you about some questionable um, employment decisions that some districts are already making that we're hearing, for instance, that Gwinnett County Public Schools announced a hiring freeze in April, about mid-April, but within a month that, that they lifted that freeze for bus monitors, teaching positions, and then the district is still not hiring central office staffers. And um, are there others likely to face similar moves, especially when we don't know how many kids will actually return to the classrooms and some of these big districts that are saying you've got an option of either or? Absolutely. I mean, the uncertainty of how many students you're going to have has to be compounded with the uncertainty of the budget, that all of these school options that we're talking about the backdrop of that is that the state just cut a billion dollars from public schools um, while these schools are also asked to do everything in their power in order to get students back in the classroom. And we have um, evidence from the last recession of what it looks like when school districts aren't given the constitutionally mandated amount for public education. And as we see furlough days, we see less professional development. For teachers, we see hiring freezes. 95% of school districts over the Great Recession um, increased class sizes. And I've seen a lot of school districts have uh, worked really hard to use some of their reserves and some CARES Act funding to um, try to make sure that, that doesn't happen this time around. But this is a crisis that's going to be with our schools for a number of years, especially if in, in year one we already cut $950 million from the state's budget for public education. Yeah. So I want to get into dig deeper into some of these cuts coming up. But I think we're going to go to a break right now, our first break, and come back and talk more about school finances. What are schools looking at financially, given that billion dollar cut out of the state budget? But what about the federal funds and some of the um, some of the other things that uh, school districts are looking at? So we'll talk about those issues and more when we return. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers on GBB, filling in for Bill Nykut, who is taking a well-deserved time off, a few days off. He is good, and he will be back tomorrow. I am happy, though, to fill in right now, and I'm joined by Ty Tagami with the AJC, Amy McCoy-Dees with the Coweta County School District, 
Margaret Ciccarelli with uh, the Professional Association of Georgia Educators and Stephen Owens with the Budget and Policy Institute. So thank, thank you for sticking with us on this. Uh, Stephen, let's let's talk further, digging into the budget a little bit. I know that your organization is looking at whether schools can even afford to open. Uh, some of the the plans are costly. Let you you talked about the nine hundred fifty million dollars in cuts from the state budget. Um, so what what exactly will that mean? Because one of the things that the the budget the budget writers talked about um, down at the Capitol was this uh, increase in money for low wealth districts, that some of the districts will get some money. I don't know if people totally understand what that means. Well, there's a few different ways that uh, low wealth school districts in the state of Georgia receive funding. And and let's be clear, this isn't charity. This is something that is uh, required in order for the state to meet its duty to provide an adequate public education for all school districts. Um, So, Originally, when cuts were proposed, uh, it looked like there were going to be cuts to some necessary grants, um, like equalization, which provides funds to low-wealth school districts. Um, Thankfully, those were restored. It looked like uh, money for public pupil transportation was restored, as well as sparsity grants, which go to low-wealth and uh, low-enrollment school districts. But also, the federal government quickly passed an act in April Uh, which provided funding for school districts through the CARES Act, and that used the Title I funding allocation, which goes to school districts with more students living in poverty. Um, And that that will be necessary for this year, um, but it is a fraction of the amount of money schools got during the Great Recession. And so it's looking about $411 million will be passed down to Georgia public schools. That's about one-fourth of what schools in Georgia received um, during the Great Recession. And so we're hoping that the federal government will pass uh, another investment act. Yeah, I know the, the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has talked about making sure K-12 gets more, but the, the controversy there deals with private schools. Can you explain that a little bit, why uh, some people are um, not not happy about some of the options? Right. So anytime there's funding for through the Title I allocation, some of that funding can go to students in private schools if low-income students in your district are attending a private school um, so that they are provided equitable services. And so when they allocated this funding, the assumption was uh, nationwide that it will follow the similar pattern to how we allocated Title I dollars, which is if there are low-income students in private schools, then, then they're entitled to some of this funding. But Secretary DeVos uh, changed the rule in order to say that it's actually what percentage of all private school students you have in your district. And this is millions of dollars in difference. Um, and it's not to say that private schools uh, don't also, aren't also feeling a hurt from the coronavirus, but this is public funds meant for public schools um, and is going to hurt districts that are already in a really difficult budgetary situation. And so that rule change um, that caught a lot of people on both sides of the aisle by surprise, and we'll see if any of those changes, any changes are made to uh, that interpretation of the law um, if Congress passes uh, another funding. Yeah, that, Amy, I've got to get you in on this. To talk about what you guys are dealing with in Coyota County. Sorry about that. I, I had a lightning uh, event here in my house, and my power flashed off, so oh. I apologize to you, Tom. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I apologize for that. 
we we it did it did cut our budget. It did um, uh, by about eleven million. And this year, uh, ironically, we had given a senior citizen tax exemption, which we were down three million from that. Uh, so. You know, we we at first were you know bummed when we heard the 14 percent here in Georgia. The governor was going to give us you know take that down to 11 percent. You know, I am an advocate for public education, and uh, I think I I got a little upset when I read how they were going to allocate those funds uh, to the to the private schools uh, because my passion lies with public education. So we are holding our own. We are doing really well. Have. have a healthy reserve, which I know most districts in the state do not. So we're a South Metro Atlanta County and have been very blessed uh, with a reserve, but it is going to hurt. Yeah. Margaret, what are you hearing from the school staff? Are they, were they worried about furloughs, salary cuts? Too soon to tell. Um, as, as Stephen mentioned, um, the legislature passed the budget at the very last day of the general uh, assembly session um, in very late June. Um, so districts have only had about a week um, with a holiday in there as well um, to uh, figure out how those um, budget pieces will fit at the local level. As Amy said, we were quite pleased that the original, originally announced 14% cut was ultimately whittled down to, to about 10%. Um, and the equalization, um, which helps lower wealth districts, as Stephen mentioned, was, uh, was protected. Nevertheless, that's a huge cut to schools across the state. I think it's premature to say that districts won't furlough because they just haven't had time to examine how these budget pieces will impact um, both what they have in reserve, stayed for uh, save for a rainy day, what's coming from the Fed, and what's coming from the state. We do know that uh, some districts have announced that they won't furlough, but we just haven't heard from enough districts to know uh, across the state if that's going to hold true for all districts. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, Donna, I'll... I could... Sure. Go ahead, Amy. I'm sorry. I could respond to the furlough. Coweta County did implement two furlough days into our school calendar. They're kind of like an inclement weather day. So we have put them in there to prepare our staff that we may have to furlough those two days, and they are in our upcoming school calendar. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, if we're going to hear about that from other school districts. And once again, it'll be interesting to hear what Gwinnett County is going to announce today. Stephen, I also want to talk about some of the issues that will become new for school districts that will um, impact their budgets. And that are smaller classrooms to accommodate spacing the kids, uh, eating in classrooms, PPE, uh, extra cleaning that may be involved. Oh, the list goes on and on. I mean, Ty mentioned that we might need to run our school buses a lot more um, in order to make sure that students can socially distance on the school bus. But pupil transportation funding in the state of Georgia has been unchanged practically since the Clinton administration. Um, So if we have this stagnant level of funding while the state has gained about 300,000 students since fiscal year 2000, um, where, where's the money going to come from in order for schools to enact these new policies? Um, so I know bus funding is a real concern to a lot of districts, buying PPE, um, hiring staff in order to have smaller class sizes, uh, and that doesn't even get into the logistical count challenges of the fact that state schools are funded based on how many students they have on two days a year. So if this 
uh, crisis goes into October, that count day for the Quality Basic Education Act, how is the state going to make sure uh, to do right by the schools if there's no real logistical way to make sure that they're in the building that day? This is something uh, state lawmakers are going to have to figure out in order uh, to make sure that schools are protected and don't feel uh, additional hits. Yeah. I want to play another part of my interview with Dr. Sally Goza, the president of the 66,000-member American Academy of Pediatrics and the, the Fayetteville physician. Here she talks about some of the suggestions on how schools can reopen during the pandemic. We really feel like anywhere that students would congregate into big crowds like cafeterias or auditoriums or even changing classes in the hallways should have some way to try to, to have that not be so big crowds. So children eating lunch in their, in their classrooms, children eating lunch outside, staggering lunch hours so you don't have, you can really socially distance in the, in the cafeteria if you have to do it there. The hallways trying to not have lockers where, you know, where children would, would be gathering, um, you know, the busing, uh, trying to have less children on a bus at a time, trying to have them have assigned seats, having the seats be where they're not sitting right next to each other, the, the bus driver wearing a mask, possibly having a, a barrier there. Uh, all of those things are just suggestions that we have for the school system. A much different look to the schools if uh, some of those suggestions are put into play. Um, Dr. Goza suggests parents actually contact their pediatricians via telemed and and have conversations about children returning to school because she says the pediatricians know the, the child's medical history. But it, it it is going to be something for each parent to try to figure out how their kids um, move on in school. So I, I wonder, Ty, if you can add to the to this a little bit about what I know that the um, the State Board of Education came out with some guidelines and all. Can we expect some of these things to um, to happen where we see like a, uh, the, the the desks are moved around in the classroom? There's I saw a picture with that big X on one of the desks and the kids can sit next to them or whatever. A very different look. Yeah, the, the guidance that's come out so far is very bare bones. It's like 10 pages long. Um, however, there is a big, big working group, like I don't know, 72 people that the uh, that the governor and the superintendent has impaneled, and, and uh, we're expecting them to come out with much more detailed guidance in like eight different categories um, of operating a school. So <clears throat> right now, the, uh, the, they are, uh, the guidance so far isn't very specific when it comes to, you know, it does call for moving desks apart, but it doesn't say how far. Um, you know, it's not six feet. Um, they're gonna be leaving, well, we'll see what the working groups do, but they're gonna be leaving a lot to the discretion of local school districts and uh, and, and based on, on local health circumstances, whether they believe they have uh, significant spread or not. Um, masks, no one's mandating masks at the, at least statewide at the school level, but I'm noticing it's starting to happen in the colleges. Last night, uh, University System of Georgia just reversed itself and said uh, masks are going to be required, although they're caveats. It's uh, it w where you can't social distance, so we'll have to see how that plays out and what that means. Um, private colleges uh, were, were ahead um, mandating masks with similar caveats. So. Uh, a lot, a lot still um, up in the air. We'll have to see schools maybe six weeks away for uh, some of these districts that are waiting until mid-August to open. Yeah, I had um, a 
a child, I have a child at UGA, and she um, ran into my room to tell me that uh, the USG announcement yesterday with masks, she was happy <laughs> about that. Um, it, it appears it, only a few of the, the, uh, the um, K-12 districts are doing it, Marietta City Schools. And, and Margaret, you were saying you heard uh, Clark County? Yes, my yeah. colleague Claire Suggs, shout out to her. She used to be uh, work with Stephen at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Yes. Um, she has children enro- enrolled in Clark County schools and mentioned that Clark um, will have, um, will require masks for students there. And it's certainly bubbling up in other uh, districts across the state, um, especially now that um, the university system has mandated it. And there's growing evidence um, uh, that there is uh, not only a public health benefit to masks, but they serve an economic benefit as well. They could potentially prevent another shutdown, um, which is something that I know that we would all be reluctant to see and would like to prevent um, if possible. Yeah. Um, Amy, you mentioned you guys aren't requiring masks, but what have you talked about in terms of social distancing in classrooms and in schools in general? Our social distancing will be as feasible. Um, We are going to try to do that where we can. Masks are going to be optional. I think it's going to be very difficult to put kindergarten and first and second graders in a mask. Uh, I think as some of my high school students, I have a daughter who is a junior at East Coweta, and and she is going to wear her mask. She has asthma, so she has said, Mom, I I feel more comfortable wearing a mask. So I think leaving that optional, but um, as Margaret said, this is going to be a day-to-day event. We could, you know, we could go back and and say, hey, masks are going to be optional tomorrow. That is just something that is just such so unprecedented. I know we say that a lot. Uh, but we we just have to go with, with what the health experts are telling us. But at this time, we're not requiring. Yeah. Masks. Margaret, you want to talk a little bit about social distancing and some of the response you're getting? Yeah, I wanted to take off my professional hat for a moment and talk about my mom hat. I've got a first grader, a second grader, and a fifth grader who live in my house. Um, and just about the issue of masks, um, we have been working on wearing those, um, certainly not uh, going out as much as we used to, but I think it's important for for parents and caregivers to start thinking about um, helping your students, um, particularly younger children, get used to wearing masks so that we don't abruptly uh, require them to do so in school on day one if that's something that a school district chooses to do. Um, so I, I think um, for parents, caregivers, and, and health care providers to start thinking about that um, is important. Yeah, I know you. Okay, so you've mentioned you have children, and uh, Amy has mentioned hers. Ty, we we had reference that you you have a, a child or two. Two. I'm okay. so lucky they're they're teenagers at this. Well, lucky and unlucky. <laughs> they're teenagers. <laughs> teenagers at this point, so they were pretty much able to look after themselves when the uh, when the shutdown occurred. As far as school, I, I can't imagine being in Margaret's position with uh, first and second graders. Yeah, I think that would be really tough. Steven, what about you? I've got a kindergartner who's going to start in the fall. And so the first time in kindergarten, first time really going to real school and uh, and, and under a pandemic. So what are you guys discussing? I mean, it's hard enough for him to understand really what the coronavirus is. And so we're just spending a lot of time making sure that he gives grace to his teachers and to the administrators. We've been really really impressed as we've listened across the state of how quickly schools have tried to take into account the needs of uh, of their students and the teachers and and 
we're anxiously looking for APS's guidance on what what it'll look like in the fall. Yeah. So you're you're um, we're. That's right. I uh, don't believe the Atlanta public school system has come out with their reopening plans, right? They've got a Not new superintendent. Yet. They have a brand new superintendent. Uh, they just found out what our final budget's going to look like a couple days ago. Um, but it looks like they're, they're going to release it uh, in the next few days or next week. I'm sure they're happy to hear that they have you as a parent to look into that budget with them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's sure what they... I'll tell myself, at least. <laughs> They're getting some <laughs> comments with that. Um, I wanted to talk about something else. The, the executive director of the National Association of Elementary School Principals, he wants Congress to expand resources for school-based mental health programs and trauma sensitivity. He wants help not just because of the virus-related issues, but those related to the racial justice outcry in recent months. So I wanted to get some comments from you guys on, on you know, given given budget issues, how important the, those mental health programs will be. Uh, Amy, have you guys uh, looked into that a little bit? Absolutely. This last year, we um, hired a mental health professional at our central um, in our central office. We have certainly looked at social and emotional learning. It is on the forefront. Uh, we we were trying to meet the needs of students and um, of all races. Certainly, it is our focus. We did uh, feeding summer feeding that we're doing currently now. Um, but it is it is a challenge, I think, uh, in this climate. But I think we've got to keep our students at the at the forefront and continue to pursue what's best for our students. Yeah, Margaret, I wanted you to comment on that a little bit, too, because teachers are coming into the, the, the climate of the school that will be a bit different in so many ways. A lot of our educators have reached out and shared um, really deep concerns about um, trauma that students may arrive at the schoolhouse door with. Not only that, but how to help students virtually if we're going to be serving students in a virtual environment. There are a lot of changes um, and maybe necessary changes happening in our society right now, but there's a lot for kids to cope with, and our educators want to be there to provide that service. Um, as such, we need to make sure that we're funding our school counselors, school social workers, school psychologists, uh, and others who can meet those student needs, um, because not only do we have those mental health needs to meet, we're also going to need to figure out where students, where the learning gaps are and help students catch up um, as we struggle to overcome the pandemic. Yeah. And Stephen, I'm thinking a lot of a lot of times those are the those are the places where the cuts will take place and some of the counseling, some of the mental health things. Absolutely. So right before uh, General Assembly paused for COVID, um, the House budget actually added in twenty three million dollars in order to fully fund the student to counselor ratio. Um, that uh, additional money was taken out when the budget uh, when the Senate went back over the budget after they came back. Um, but that is one area that we know that in crises, it demands professionals being able to speak into these children's lives. And so we're hoping and advocating for in the coming years to reprioritize that funding so that schools have what they need in order to, uh, to meet the students' needs. Because you, you, to your point, this was an issue well before COVID. The amount of research on how much students' social-emotional lives affects their performance uh, how much it predicts, you know, they're th flourishing later on uh, makes this an imperative to fund moving forward.
Yeah. Okay, we're going to uh, take a break. We're going to take our second and final break right now and come back. When we, let's talk a little bit more about that online learning and what that'll look like. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers on GPB, filling in for Bill Nykut, who has taken a few days off, and he'll be back tomorrow. We'll be glad to have him back to talk more about these kinds of issues that we're talking about today uh, that we all care about. And joining me are Ty Tagami with the AJC, Amy McCoy-Dees with Calita County Schools, Margaret Ciccarelli with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators page, and Stephen Owens with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. I also want to mention that tomorrow on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, Ellen Eldridge, one of our great reporters here at GPB, will have a report on how teachers and parents are preparing for an uncertain school year. So we're going to continue this conversation. And, of course, this is something that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come as schools reopen. I want to get now into the whole idea of what this online learning will look like that we've had to deal with this past spring uh, with students and then what it might look like um, coming forward, lessons learned maybe from what happened in the spring. And so, Amy, let's talk about uh, online learning in Coweta County. What accommodations will your district make that is um, maybe different from this past spring? Well, I will tell you, um, I have referred often to March the 13th, the day that the governor shut the schools or, or requested that we shut down as crisis learning mode. I think it was unfair to say that it was online learning. I know some districts disagreed with me and said, oh, we're doing great. We're rolling it out. Our kids are learning. They're online. In Coweta County, our kids are geographically challenged. So it's, it's not an economic thing. It's not a, a racial thing. It's not a divide. It's a geographical divide on who can get Internet access. So um, I, I tend to think that we've worked all summer. We have put uh, folks in place and educators in place to roll out a proper curriculum for online. But we are going from crisis learning mode, hopefully, into a better um, environment for learning. But there's still that lack of equity in learning. How do we offer equity and learning to children who need extra, who need that teacher or that special needs or who need that extra encouragement where the parents are not going to fill that gap with online learning? Yeah. Ty, I want to talk about the, the fact that lawmakers made some moves to improve at least rural broadband uh, before they finish the rebooted uh, session. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen by August. Um <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's a, it's a lot what they're talking about doing uh, in terms of the utility poles and, and how they're um, going to make the, the it's going to allow the Public Service Commission, right, to to kind of take over on rates and fees and other terms. Yeah, and I don't know how that's going to work. I think more than anything, this has just sort of elevated the issue, an issue that's always been there and made it uh, perhaps more of a priority for now. But it's any any solution is is going to be uh, far far in the distance. I mean, right now the state the state just uh, put like four million dollars into a program to um, um, deliver more hotspot. You know, those little I guess you call them hotspots uh, around the state. They'd already been been delivering some, but um, you know they're putting them on school buses so the bus can drive into a neighborhood and kids can sit around uh, the bus and and get online. Or um, in some cases, maybe the the libraries are going to be loaning them out. 
But this, these are uh, drops in the ocean compared to the need. We've got 1.8 million kids in, in Georgia. So um, in many parts of the state, there isn't broadband. Even homes, households that can afford it, they just can't get it. So all they have is uh, cell service. And, you know, I'm told that kind of the quality of the cell service depends on where you're standing in the house. So it's not really the kind of thing you're going to be doing Zoom classes on. Um, so, and you can't really just offer online only in a district where half the kids can get online. That's just um, not equitable. So uh, online is, is going to be a challenge, um, it, it, even in the best places like, Forsyth County is is pretty well. It, it, we know they have uh, all the technology, but even teachers there were they were they were ready for three days, like for a snow outage um, for going online, not not for six weeks or whatever it was. Yeah, and I I know that's why some of the school districts are delaying opening so that they can kind of get ramped up a, a little bit better on and all this. When you're talking about the uh, some of the people standing in a certain room and trying to get their um, cell service or their in their internet service, um, my mother-in-law is in a rural area, and honestly, there is one part of her. Uh, if you walk outside and the wind blows a certain way, I can get uh, I can get cell service. So um, internet service is just not not no doesn't exist. So uh, so it is going to be tough. I did want to ask you, Margaret. What what are teachers saying in ter- in terms of those who might want to be want to do the um, the online teaching? Uh, well, access to internet, both for teachers and for students, is one of the top concerns educators have in two surveys um, we've done over the last few months. Um, so, um, educators really worry that uh, that students are not prepared um, with uh, access to, to reliable internet to be able to to really do this kind of remote or crisis learning, uh, as Amy um, probably rightly called it. Um, so some teachers want to do that, um, uh, learning themselves, would prefer that teaching model themselves, um, but some of them don't have access to it, particularly in rural Georgia. Um, so it's not only a student access problem, it's a teacher access problem as well. Yeah. And do you, has anybody talked about what what's the spring did with kids? Let's talk academically in terms of how um, how kids were able to to make it. I know there are big concerns that some students really did not perform well, and they're they're going to have to play catch up under the circumstances we're facing coming up. It's going to be very, very difficult for educators to gauge where students are and how to catch them up if they're in a virtual um, environment. And I think that's why if we can figure out how to mitigate some of the risk, most educators and also healthcare providers would like, and parents as well, would like to go to a, an on-site school setting. Um, but we've got to first assess where those students are and then figure out how to move them forward. And it's going to be an incredible challenge for a whole generation of students who are going to be impacted by this. Yeah. Amy, any thoughts on that? I would say that we are going to be looking at remediation for the first several weeks of school. I think there is no option in that. Uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter um, who, you know, would barely roll out of bed at 11.30 a.m. during COVID-19. And I'm like, you have geometry homework to do. So as a parent, it's very challenging. So I think structure is a must. I think it's absolute. I also have my oldest daughter as a teacher. So she teaches high school, and so I was calling, you know, for help from my daughter, you know, help help get your sister. But I think we're going to have some remediation issues, and it's such a challenge 
such a challenge. Yeah. And Ty, I know one of the things that the Georgia Department of Education did was to uh, suspend standardized tests, and we're expecting that to happen again, too. Uh, That takes off some of the pressure, but it also uh, takes away the um, ability to gauge how students are actually doing. Yeah, that's right. The uh, the milestones test, there are people who uh, really don't like them, um, but then there are others who also note that it's sort of the only yardstick we have uh, for the whole state. Uh, school districts can offer their own off-the-shelf tests, but that's sort of an internal measure. Um, it, it, it doesn't tell you how you're doing against the rest of the state. So without the milestones, I don't know how we're going to know how much kids fell behind last year um, or, you know, if they did. And then uh, expecting might be too strong a word. Hoping, I think, is what uh, the state officials are. Uh, they're hoping we, the, the federal government says we don't have to do the milestones next year. Um, but then that would be two, a two-year gap where we just we don't really know what happened to our kids. Yeah. Uh, Margaret, in terms of the, what the teachers are feeling, that that does take some of the pressure off though them, though, doesn't it? That they don't have to um, prepare. They're not teaching to the test, as, as some people have claimed anyhow. Right. I think they really appreciate that the focus is on the main thing, which is the teaching and the learning and not preparation for standardized testing. It allows them to do the job that they were trained to do and to serve students in the way that um, they know is best. So um, I think this is a positive move, um, though we will certainly resume discussion about standardized tests and the way that they rightly fit into the education setting uh, as we move forward. Yeah. Amy, I was wondering a little bit about how the the look of the online will be, uh, you know, for those of us who don't have children that, that young now. Is it going to be where the teacher has is teaching both kids online and kids in the classroom at the same time in front of a computer? Or will there be teachers just designated for um, online learning? I believe in Coweta we're going to have designated teachers for online learning. I think it's going to have to be a specific a way to teach those children at home as opposed to being in the classroom. Okay. Ours will be specifically oriented. And, and that's and that's probably what most are expecting, right, Margaret? We're to, to actually be online teachers or in-classroom teachers. I think that remains to be seen in the district. We might see some teachers who were both, um, who were pulling shifts in, in both of those ways, um, but it just depends on, on the qualifications of the teachers in the district um, and what the local leaders think that the parents and other stakeholders want um, and what they have the resources to provide. Yeah. Do you have any idea where people are leaning in some of the larger districts in terms of whether they want online or they want their kids to go back? I haven't seen the survey results. Ty and I were talking about that today. Um, most districts have surveyed, or yesterday rather, most districts have surveyed their stakeholders to get an idea of what they want. An indicator, um, for instance, where Ty and I have kids enrolled, um, we are we will hear next Friday, not this Friday, but next Friday, um, in response to a survey that stakeholders filled out about whether hybrid, um, online only, or um, in a regular kind of on-site 
flight school um, will be the thing. But I also just wanted to mention both a shout out to my teachers, my kids' teachers, but also to the many teachers out there who really provided de facto tech support, um, not only to each other as they all learned um, to pivot quickly when schools shut down and provide online instruction, but also to parents as we navigated how to connect to platforms like Google Classroom and to better educate our kids at home. Educators did an outstanding job. We really appreciate those media specialists and others who helped us do that. We certainly got a, a greater appreciation for all educators during this spring. Uh, even those of us who didn't have young kids in the house, I just had to appreciate what everybody was going through. I want to thank all of you for being with us today, because that'll do it for today's Political Rewind. Uh, thank you to my guests, Ty Tagami, Amy McCoy-Dees, Margaret Ciccarelli, and Stephen Owens. Um, if you missed any part of the show or you liked it so much that you want to listen again, you can find it on gppnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And Bill Nygut will be back tomorrow.